Hey guys, as coders and billers, we get it. Healthcare compliance can be a hassle, inconvenient, and a headache that never goes away. That's why they've developed EpiCompliance, an easy-to-use software that helps you stay up to date and on track with the ever-changing requirements of healthcare compliance. This cloud-based software covers HIPAA, privacy and security, OSHA, and the ACA OIG Medicare Waste, Fraud, and Abuse Prevention Compliance Requirements. It includes forms, policies, tasks, and mandated compliance training all in one easy-to-use interface. Do you need to send and organize your business associate agreements to your clients? You can do that with Epi Compliance through their business associate center. And most importantly, in our profession, Epi Compliance covers you with the billing and coding and prevention of waste, fraud, and abuse compliance. Don't risk getting on the CMS, HHS, OIG list of excluded individuals and entities, which is a permanent record on the internet. Ready to stay up to date and compliant every month with Epi Compliance? You have to do it. Did I mention it's required by law? Might as well do it right with Epi Compliance. Right now, Life as a Coder podcast listeners can save 20% on their subscription by visiting epicompliance.com forward slash Ozark and using the discount code Ozark20. That's epicompliance.com forward slash O-Z-A-R-K and use the discount code OZAR20, O-Z-A-R-K-2-0. You work on your business, let Epi Compliance take care of your compliance. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. Discussing your life as a medical coder, offering coding tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series. My name is Jennifer McNamara, and our program is brought to you from your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. And our goal, as always, is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. And if you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today. And as always, our disclaimer is, is that information presented is not to be taken as legal or professional advice, but of course is based on our years of experience. And of course, we want to share with you what we've learned and why we love this industry. I'm very, very excited about today's episode. Uh, We're going to be talking about a risk adjustment exam review. This was a request by several of our listeners. I know this is an exam that many people are nervous about, uh, especially if you already have a credential and you're already working in the field maybe and you're thinking about adding value to your resume. Of course, it is something that I have obtained. I, of course, got my risk adjustment credential back late 2019. And I love, of course, teaching it. I love learning more about it because I love ICD-10. And so I know a lot of you out there feel the same. A lot of my listeners love increasing their knowledge in risk adjustment uh, and, of course, ICD-10-CM. So for those of you that are new and those of you who aren't familiar with risk adjustment, we are going to talk about that today. And we are going to talk about, of course, um, the exam tips. Now, I do want to, of course, always direct you uh, to the organization who administers the exam. That's the AAPC, 
the American Academy of Professional Coders. And on their website, if you look under exams, you'll find the certified risk coder um, exam information. Um, and at the bottom, they always give you kind of a layout of what is expected, what you'll be tested on. And they'll tell you how many questions per section are on the exam. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to kind of break up that exam a little bit. Um, some of the pieces that will maybe make it a little easier uh, and more understandable for you uh, to understand risk adjustment. Now, when it comes to uh, the exam, yes, it is 150 questions, uh, just like um, the CPC exam and all their other exams, 150 questions. Uh, you do have the, the normal five hours and 40 minutes. I When I took mine, I did finish about an hour early. I found that the exam actually went a little you know, smoother and it was a lot more, um, I could work faster through it because it was just ICD-10. I didn't have to flip through CPT and HixPix. Um, I just had my ICD-10 book. A tip I wanted to bring out is of course, definitely, 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 realize that you do have um, in your um, ICD-10 manual, most of them in the very back in your appendices, there is a section that covers some of the things on the exam and it's risk adjustment basics. And it's going to talk about the MIPS and things like that, that are on the exam. So when you get there to that section, I want you to review that and understand what is on the exam already uh, or what is in the book already. And then when you take your exam, uh, you'll already have that in there. Uh, but when I took mine, I actually took a lot of the notes from my risk adjustment, um, you know, uh, review that I took, and also from the study guide. And the things I wanted to remember that I knew weren't coding and weren't already in my book, I wanted to make notes on that. So whatever I talk about today, and this, of course, we're going to treat this as a risk adjustment exam review, uh, just like we had for the CPMA and we had for the, the CPC. It's only an hour, guys. So I'm just going to cover the basics because most of you who take this exam, you should already be familiar uh, with the ICD-10 SCM guidelines. And you have to be. You have to be um, really well-versed in guidelines. You have to understand disease process, which is why when you take the risk adjustment course by our company or any other company that provides that training, they're going to, of course, offer you the option to learn anatomy, pharmacology, which we do as well. We have anatomy and pharmacology courses that are added on uh, to those who are brand new and don't have that knowledge already. It's really crucial because on the exam, when you do those cases, yes, they're all multiple choice, but you are going to have to understand um, that when they tell you the patient has this condition and they tell you they're prescribing this medication, you're going to have to understand, of course, that you're going to report that diagnosis because it has a bearing on the treatment. They've told you they are prescribing this medication or they're monitoring this medication. So knowing what that medication is used for will help you correlate that with the disease or diagnosis that they're documenting. And so that's why it's so important to understand those things, because that's going to help you when you're abstracting your cases, you're going to understand those things. So what is risk adjustment? Well, of course, we're going to talk about that. And I want to briefly talk about the history of it. Um, I got some great information, of course, from the CMS website. And going all the way back to 1997, that is when the government first started using risk adjustment. I've been hearing about it for years. And then when the Affordable Care Act came out, you know, there were some, you know, updates and there were some continued monitoring of that and more programs coming out. And so it's a really good idea. And I'm going to put in my show notes to review the CMS documents um, on risk adjustment. And if you're going to be in that field, you're going to be, of course, admonished and trained um, by your employer uh, to 
always keep up to date on those files and, and those updates. Now, I will say on the exam, I want to alleviate any stress. There are not going to be a way for you, of course, like every exam, you're not going to be able to use your phone. You're not going to be able to use a computer. So you're not going to have access to the files that you think you might need to get data from, right, for the exam. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about all the files you have to pull, you know, to, to learn all that. It's all the information you need is going to be right in front of you. You're basically just going to take what you know about risk adjustment and you're going to plug in the data according to the questions they ask you. I will say some of the questions, uh, they can be tricky. And so maybe you're used to a, a full coding exam like the CPC, and some of the questions are going to ask you, what is not the answer? And so your brain might go a little, okay, that's a little bit different. And so you may have to spend a few minutes on that question because you're thinking about it really well, right? So just like any exam that you take with AAPC or any um, other you know, organization, if you're able to, it's always a good idea to go and jump around. Take that exam like you would the CPC or any other exam. Go to the sections you know well first because that's going to maximize your time. You're going to need to spend as much time as possible on those cases that you're abstracting. Yes, they're multiple choice, but they're time consuming. So you're going to have to, you're going to see the multiple choice questions and the answers. There's going to be like 10 codes sometimes behind each multiple choice answer. So you're going to have to know how to eliminate those as quickly as possible. Never, ever, ever, ever use your index on an exam. I tell my students that every time and they don't know why until they get there, right? And they realize how much time um, it takes to flip to the index to look at each code and to look them up. It takes a lot of time. It's okay to do that in the real world. Obviously, yes, we know you knew how to code and that's why you're here. The, of course, the AAPC who administers the exam, they know you've gone through a training program and you know how to code, but it's about speed and accuracy. They want to know that you understand how to properly code um, and according to the guidelines. Now, other programs have great resources, and um, the one that I use is this fabulous book right here, Risk Adjustment, Documentation and Coding, second edition. And of course, the writer is Sherry Pobernard, one of my favorite people. Uh, she has spoken at some of our events, especially last year at our, our virtual summit. And so I, of course, fell in love with her immediately, fell in love with her education. And so um, our training course is provided from her curriculum and has great information because it's not just about passing the exam. Her book gives you cases. It gives you examples on how to abstract, which you really need um, to understand in order to, to work in the field as a risk adjustment coder. And also, of course, um, to pass the exam. So when we think about risk adjustment, um, it's really about, you know, understanding the insurance role. Now, the insurance companies, they will typically hire risk adjustment coders, mostly. Now, hospitals use them, too. So they work in various aspects of the healthcare arena. Um, but of course, when it comes to the insurance companies like the Medicare Advantage plans, they want these risk adjustment coders because they're paid by Medicare, of course, to um, to report these risk adjusted areas. Uh, because, you know, when it comes to understanding the true cost to insure a patient, they look at those things and then they audit. Of course, you know, you have auditors that come in and audit the charts to make sure they're accurate. Um, the, those insurance companies want to make sure that they're receiving accurate information so they can understand the true cost to insure that patient for the following year. So they'll, of course, look at the previous data in order to do that. And so what I want to talk about is what your role as a risk adjustment coder is. So you're going to perform those medical coding reviews. You're going to look at, you're going to look specifically at codes that risk adjust. 
that are identified in your ICD-10-CM codebook. Um, you're going to have to look for medical record data accuracy. So you're going to have to really understand the documentation. You're going to have to understand what is appropriate to document, what is necessary, things like the physician's signature, what types of physicians uh, are allowed to report risk adjustment, um, wh which types of physicians we can, we can pull that data from, what types of records we can pull that data from, and all of those things. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to break up the exam um, in several pieces. So bear with me here as I go through my education here uh, and we'll go from there. So um, what I want to talk about is, of course, first of all, uh, the risk adjustment methodologies. And when it comes to those, we understand um, that um, there are different types. So we have the HCC model the hierarchical condition categories and the, of course, the chronic illness and disability payment system, which is used by Medicaid. And then we have the, the HHS, which is used by mostly your um, commercial payers. So in risk adjustment, they're going to be evaluating the patients um, on an equal scale. They want to identify which patients have a higher medical need, right? Because they have chronic conditions. And those chronic conditions may be coupled with other chronic conditions. And when those come together, it increases their risk score and increases the amount of care they're going to need, resources they're going to need to deliver that care. So that's what it's all about. And so knowing that is, of course, the first step, right? And um, then you have to know the different types of reviews that they do. Now, you're going to be tested on these reviews, retrospective, concurrent, prospective. So I'm going to give you those definitions. And those definitions, of course, are in the official um, risk adjustment CRC um, you know, prep course, they're in the uh, study guide. So if you have that or you're going to purchase one, all the information you will need is in that study guide. So a retrospective audit would or a review would be performed after retro, right? After the diagnosis has been reported. Concurrent is, of course, ongoing um, as the patients are seen prior to reporting, right? And then prospective performed um, um, ongoing as patients are seen to identify values affecting the next year. Those are the three types. Uh, and so you'll need to know those. And like I mentioned, you know, we have the diagnosis based, but we also have prescription based uh, reviews or risk adjustment uh, methodologies. We mentioned the CDPS, um, the HCC for Medicare, um, the diagnosis related groups for inpatient, we understand DRGs, and then adjusted clinical groups, the ACGs for outpatients in the facility. Uh, prescription risk adjustment, we have the Medicaid risk prescription, the UCSD, and the prescription groups, um, the uh, diagnosis CG, and then, of course, the hierarchical coexisting conditions, the prescription HCCs. So that's a lot of data. That's a lot of information. On your exam, you're really just going to have to know the different types. You're going to do some research, right? Your study guide is going to give you more information about those specific areas. But we're going to focus on just the basics on the risk adjustment from the Medicare plans. And that's where most of us will probably live unless we work for um, in that area of prescription drugs. But we're going to focus on the Medicare Advantage plans, the HCC categories. And we're just going to kind of give you an example, um, you know, of what you're going to see on the exam. Now, you're going to see on the exam maybe a chart. Um, they may give you an example of those model categories, and they're going to give you diagnosis, and they're going to say this course belongs in this category, and you're going to have to know that that's true or false. And so it is beneficial, yes, to take a course, because if you have no knowledge whatsoever about the different category models that um, diagnosis fall into, 
you're going to maybe be lost a little bit. So it is highly recommended that you take a course, at least a basic course, just to get the familiar with the different areas um, of risk adjustment. And of course, taking an exam does not mean that you're going to automatically be a successful risk adjustment coder. It takes time, just like it does with any other credential. You're going to have to take the time to get to know the information, to practice through use, right? So through use and through actually doing it, being trained on the job, you're going to get better at it. But for the exam, you need to know the basics. They want to know you understand how to code, obviously, how to understand documentation. And may, you may have heard about the Trump list. Now, on the exam, they're going to give you an example of a Trump list. You're going to see different HCC values. You're going to see the disease group label. And you're going to see numbers. And it's going to tell you, okay, drop these HCCs. So, for instance, if a patient has metastatic cancer and acute leukemia, they're going to tell you that's HCC number eight, right? So they're going to say, of course, if that's true, you're not going to need the ones below it, right? Because it is the most severe. It includes the metastatic cancer. So that cancer has, of course, spread to another area. And they also have acute leukemia. So maybe HCCs 9, 10, and 11, and 12, for instance, are not as severe as that. So they're going to tell you if they have this condition, drop these. So on your exam, they're going to ask you these questions. If the patient has this condition, which HCC do we keep? And maybe which HCCs do we drop? And that's a hierarchical condition category. There, That category is, of course, going to take precedence over the others because it is more severe. So uh, for instance, a patient with HCC 17, diabetes with acute complications, and diabetes with chronic complications. So that's going to be the, the difference. Do they have an acute complication or a chronic complication? And which is more severe according to these um, Trump lists, so to speak? So don't worry about having all that data. It's going to be right in front of you. The actual data is going to be on the test for you to review and so forth. That's just an example of how to do that. And of course, if you want more training and more examples, um, we do offer a mock exam uh, with our training course. It's a very you know, brief overview of the exam. It's only like six hours of training, very basic. And all of our students get our CEU membership absolutely free for taking any of our courses, especially our risk adjustment. So another thing we want to highlight is you need to understand the acceptable list of provider specialties um, that are allowed to submit risk adjustment data. So you're going to need to know those. And it's just a quick glance, you know, all of this information is on the official CMS documents, and I'm going to put those in my show notes, like I mentioned. And so you're going to want to review those and just glance at them. Now, you may not want to write every single one of them down <laughs> uh, because that would take a very long time. And you don't want to have so much handwritten notes in your book because that could be a red flag when they're going through your book. They might think you're writing test questions down. So my my big thing I tell my students is the APC, that yes, with all exams, they go through your book. They check to make sure there's no sticky notes, no loose papers, uh, but they very much, of course, will frown on you taking test questions from like an, a practice exam and handwriting them in your book. And it has happened, which is why they have to check the books. So it's always best to take brief notes, um, you know, things that are just kind of briefly going to bring that thought back to your mind. Don't write long passages because you just need to take brief notes to remind yourself. So you know you. <laughs> so take that advice and learn what you need to learn and then and go from there. 
And so um, when it comes to that, it's just basically understanding who is not. There are some providers that most coders do not consider when reporting diagnosis codes, like an audiologist or a physical therapist, for instance. Um, and then when it comes to the CDPS and Medicaid prescription drug models, um, with those, they have different categories than maybe the HCC would have. So you're going to see examples of that in a course. Um, they're going to ask you about um, the different um, hierarchies within the CDPS model, for instance. They have different stages, um, different groups. Um, so if it's a very high, if it's a medium, a low, or an extra low. So certain conditions fall into those categories because of the condition. So maybe a heart transplant or a valve replacement. That would be considered very high in that category, right? That patient's going to require more resources, right? It's going to have a higher weight when it comes to the risk adjustment. And then a medium, like a heart attack, for instance. And then low is considered maybe a heart disease or extra low hypertension. That can be treated with medication. It's not exacerbated. It's stable for those purposes. So it's not going to be considered a really um, you know, high or medium uh, risk uh, weight. Um, and so they're going to ask you, of course, uh, things about documentation. Now, one of the things I want to highlight is things that you're looking for in the documentation. You may have seen a previous note and the patient had, you know, diabetes uh, with a complication. But then later you see that they're prescribing a medication that is typically for somebody who has a complication with diabetes, but they only document diabetes mellitus. And so you don't have enough information in that face-to-face -face visit, in that note, to pull a complication for diabetes. But you know, because of what they're prescribing, because of what they're giving them, they may have a neurological complication, a renal complication. Why are they ordering um, oxygen for the patient? You know, if they have other conditions like, you know, asthma, pneumonia, all these other things, and they're ordering um, this oxygen, you know, if that's not specified specifically, how how is that accurate, right? And so things like that. And of course, um, certain lab findings can provide information for more accurate diagnosis, right? But those have to be reviewed by an approved provider before you can consider that for coding purposes. And so that's something to remember as well. That will be on the test, understanding when to use lab tests um, and uh, so forth. So I, I can't go over all the ins and outs, but there are things they look for when they're doing some of these um, suspect logic things that they do. They're looking at the socioeconomic status. If a patient has a certain, you know, socioeconomic status, like low income, for instance, and they have a chronic disease, they're being treated right for a chronic illness due to non-compliance with medication, for instance. Maybe they can't afford their medication because of their economic status. That puts them at a higher risk for continuing to have that condition. And of course, they're not going to get better and they're going to require more resources. So that's one of the reasons they look at that. Um, and then, of course, like disability, this may require more resources as well. So when they take the suspect logic factors like these, they're going to suspect that that patient's going to require more resources because of these factors. So they're going to test you on all of those suspect logic factors as well, understanding those. And um, that's how they do their predictive, you know, things that they do. Now, um, under quality of care, they're going to test you on that. That's part of the exam. They're going to test you on those CMS star ratings. So those different ratings, of course, affect the risk adjustment. And so they're going to test you on things like staying healthy. Um, are you Is your insurance providing those screenings, those testing vaccines? Um, are, they going, are they having a way to manage your chronic long-term conditions? 
Um, do they have a way to, of course, ask for your member experience? They want to look at the member experience, those, of course, reviews the patients give on that health plan. What are the complaints and any changes in their performance? And how is their customer service for that health plan? Those are the five domains they're going to ask about. So knowing those five domains um, is going to be helpful. And a lot of that information, of course, is on CMS's website. So if you don't take a course and you're feeling like, I can do this on my own, definitely take a look at that Medicare document, all the ins and outs that are out there with reputable sources like Medicare, um, understanding those different um, parts of the risk adjustment plans and methodologies. Of course, they're going to test you on things like HIDAS, what is HIDAS, the healthcare effectiveness data and information set. Um, of course, you're going to need to know all of the ins and outs of HIDAS and what that accomplishes. They're going to ask you about the National Quality Forum, the NQF, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan membership-based organization uh, that works to catalyze improvements in healthcare. Um, and so their mission, of course, is to improve, ensure safe, effective, patient-centered timely, efficient, and equitable care. There's a lot of information out there on that. The MACRA, they're going to talk about that. The MIPS program, you'll need to know about that for the quality reporting and things like that. Um, let's see what else I want to talk about here. Oh, the alternative payment models. So they're going to ask you about that. That's another um, track that CMS is, of course, using um, under the quality payment program. So you're going to need to understand that. There's information, of course, in the risk adjustment uh, code or study guide on that. And when I teach risk adjustment, I, my favorite thing is to talk about the, the money. Where's the money? And so when I think about that, I always show uh, my uh, students a certain slide. And if you take my course, you'll see the slide, of course. Um, but a patient who has maybe, you know, all those factors, they're, of course, 76 years old, they're Medicaid eligible, they don't have diabetes mellitus coded, there's no value to that, they don't have vascular diseases, they don't have CHF, there's no interaction factor. So if they just are Medicaid and they're a certain age, those factors, those socioeconomic factors or age, disability, anything like that is going to give a certain weight, of course. And that's going to basically say, after you put all the weights in there and you look at the payment for that, it's going to look to the insurance company, oh, okay, it's not going to cost me $5,000 to insure this patient. But the next time they, they review a note, they notice, okay, the patient has diabetes. It's documented. So that's going to add more weight to, to and more value to that note. They also have a vascular disease with, without complications, though. It's going to add weight. So that's going to add a little bit of money to that. And so now they're going to see, okay, it's really going to cost me $8,000, right, to insure this patient. But wait, a certified coder now reviews the chart and finds that it was coded incorrectly. And all of that information is there. It just wasn't captured on the claim. So yes, they're Medicaid eligible. Of course, their age is documented. They do have diabetes mellitus with a vascular manifestation. And that is now captured correctly with the right codes. And that is, of course, reported. And that weight or that, um, that risk factor is documented and pulled. They also have documented a vascular disease with a complication, and they found they were not coding the chronic or the congestive heart failure. And there is a disease interaction bonus risk adjustment factor for that. So that adds further weight. So after all of that, we went from $5,000 now to $16,000 that is now going to show as the true reserve that's needed for that year. So this is how important 
chart reviews are by a certified coder who understands all these things, who's been trained in this, especially in the risk adjustment area. But all coders have a role in this. Even if you're not a risk adjustment coder and you want to become a certified risk adjustment coder, you want to have that, that value, understand it. It's also going to help you, even if you're not coding in a risk adjustment field for the hospital, for insurance company, it's going to help you because it's going to train your mind to think that way. Are you well-trained in, in the documentation guidelines, understanding, educating physicians? Are you in that role where you have to educate them on documentation? Are you in a role, obviously all of us have to code appropriately. We have to code what the documentation says. And most risk adjustment coders, that's what their job is too. They're still required to read that documentation according to the ICD-10 guidelines and report those guidelines appropriately. Now, when it comes to audits, now there are different types of audits you'll be tested on. So you're going to be tested on, of course, um, you know, the uh, RIDV audits and the um, targeted, the national and the targeted. You'll need to know that for the exam. You're going to need to know um, the elements of each different type of audit. So for a national RIDV audit, they're going to select those patients using a stratified method. Um, they're going to select them randomly from high risk, medium risk, and low risk based on their scores. And the selection of the Medicare Advantage plan or contract is going to be random. That's a random one. It's The national one is random. Now, the targeted, we think of the word targeted, right? So they're going to have had a problematic past in past audit findings, and they're going to look for plans with higher risk scores that are compared to the traditional fee-for-service Medicare plans. So that's what the difference is between a national, that random one, versus the targeted. So know that. And for the HHS RADV, um, they're going to use the EDGE server. You're going to be tested on that. It includes medical claim file information like their IDs, the information on the patient specifically, diagnosis codes, their coverage from and through dates, service codes, all of the CPT and HICS codes that were reported. That's the data they're going to pull. And um, for that HRDV audit, they're going to look at the age, the risk level, and so forth for the patient. So if you have the time and you're preparing for the exam, I highly recommend learning more about the different RADV audits and, and, and how they, of course, are interpreted and how we understand them. You need to know the differences between a CMS audit, RADV audit, and an HHS RADV audit. So a CMS typically is two to three years after payment, while the HHS occurs typically six months after the end of the year. The RADV for CMS includes approximately 30 health plans, and the, the HRADV involves all participating plans. Now, for the CMS, they use that stratified sample of the high, medium, and low risk. HHS, will, of course, will use 10 stratas from that, that, that sample. And so you need to know all these things. And I can't go into all this detail in only an hour, right? Usually when I teach this, it's, of course, a long process. And so I can only give you some of the basics. Just I'm just telling you guys today in, in this episode how to prepare for your exam. It's up to you to, of course, take that information and, and of course, prepare for it. Now, those who do this risk adjustment, these the risk adjustment data validation, the RADV audits, they have a checklist. They're going to look at the patient, making sure all of that data is there making sure that they, of course, have a legible record. The appropriate provider type is there. They're going to make sure that there's a diagnosis, that it supports an HCC, um, and, of course, supports the requested HCC. 
And so those are things that we'll want to be aware of. Now, I want to kind of talk about now, just the the remainder of our time here, I want to talk about the ICD-10-CM guidelines. That is a big part of the exam. Now, I wanted to highlight, um, there are about 60 questions, according to the AAPC layout of their exam, on ICD-10 guidelines. I think there's about 18 to 20 uh, cases where you're going to be pulling, abstracting codes from an actual note, a chart note that's very, of course, lengthy. But on the guidelines, I highly recommend if you're really good and you're a proficient in that, doing that first. That's what I did. I went to the ICD-10 guideline questions. I knocked them out because I knew I could do them quickly. I knew my guidelines so well that I was very familiar with them. And I studied really hard. <laughs> I read my guidelines from cover to cover and I really, really dug in. So I felt comfortable. But know your coding conventions. That's the first thing. Um, it's very basic to ICD-10, but you would not believe how important it is. To be um, to have that in your mind to know automatically. I know what that convention means. I know what code also means. I know what code first means. I know what NOS means. I know what excludes one, excludes two means. I don't have to look. I know what it means. I know how to apply it. And then the combination codes. Do you understand how to uh, to properly code the manifestation and the associated complication? Do you understand the order and what each digit means in a complication code, especially for diabetes? Um, you're going to want to know the frequently coded conditions in risk adjustment. And we cover that in our, of course, our course. We go over each of the main conditions that are considered frequently coded. And we go over um, some of the, the ICD-10 guidelines and what to know for documentation purposes. So things from a cardiovascular standpoint, there's a lot of cardiovascular conditions that risk adjust. So it's important for you to understand not only the disease process, the drug interaction, but also how to interpret the ICD-10 guidelines when we get to our tabular. For instance, angina. Have you looked at all of these notes, those coding conventions, the use additional codes they give you for that? You have to be so familiar with that, Um, especially on the exam. You have to be able to go there and interpret, do I code this? Is this documented? This, this, and this? Is this documented? Can I code this in additional? It's all there for you in what I like to call our roadmap is our ICD-10 manual. We start in our index and we go to our tabular, except for our exam, of course. But in the real world, yes, we use our index that leads us to our tabular. There's a lot of information when you're coding in the the real job as an HTC coder. There's a lot of information that can be missed um, if we don't go from our index to our tabular. Because just going to the tabular, like, okay, I know where that is. That's there. But there may lead you somewhere completely different if you don't use your index as your starting point to get there. Now, on the exam, they're going to give you all of the data you need. All the codes that they want you to code for that chart are going to be in the in the multiple choice answers. So you're not going to have to look at your index. They've already done that step for you. The correct answer is somewhere in that, of course, multiple choice answer. But on the job, when you're doing risk adjustment for your job every day, Please, please, please use your index first. Use the ICD-10 manual the way it was intended to be used. That's my my advice. Um, there are things like, you know, um, attention to, like a gastrostomy, ileostomy. Those things are important to report uh, because they are, of course, affecting the treatment, especially if that's what they're there for, right? Knowing what those things are used for. Um, body mass index and obesity. Those There's very specific guidelines on that. We have to understand when to use those, right? Um, there are, of course, I'm going to say lots of cardiovascular conditions like the cerebrovascular accident. 
Um, there's additional codes we have to understand when to report the sequela, whether it's an acute condition, other codes, and then of course things like are things that we assume a relationship with, right? Hypertension with CKD and so forth with heart failure. And understanding uh, chronic conditions, uh, things like dementia, depression, of course, our diabetes codes, uh, things like GERD. Yes, GERD is considered a frequently coded condition. Uh, and it is, of course, um, we have to understand its connection with other things like esophagitis, so forth. We have to understand that this diagnosis is often included in risk adjustment models because of the cost of medical management. So train your brain to think now, yes, I'm coding this condition because it risk adjusts for the fact it's going to cost a lot of resources to treat for the patient for it. That's the getting down to the nitty gritty of risk adjustment. It's going to cost money to treat the patient who has this condition. So let's do a breakdown and let's do a review. Now that we've talked about some of the basic areas, I'm going to give you the breakdown of the exam, what to study for. So there are 23 multiple choice questions on the RIDV audits. We've discussed a few of those, right? We've discussed a little bit about those. How to identify the common errors that are identified in that. The perspective audits, the RIDV audits, and the retrospective audits. They're going to test you on those. So know the differences. I, of course, have discussed the different uh, multiple choice questions. There are 60 questions on ICD-10 coding, so be very familiar with those. Um, learn how to code. They're going to amputations. I'm going to There's a list on the AAPC website. I'm not going to read all of them, but it goes from A to Z. There is a ton of conditions they're going to mention there. They want to make sure you know how to code those, understand the documentation. So go to the AAPC's website under that exam. Go down to those breakdowns of those exam pieces and read through the different course required um, knowledge that you have to have. Documentation improvement, of course. 18 questions on how to communicate documentation discrepancies. Uh, you know, things that you learn in the documentation you have to, of course, educate the provider on. There's going to be eight multiple choice questions on terminology. So yes, you are going to have to be familiar with medical terminology, anatomy, of course, disease interaction. When it comes to pharmacology, you're going to have to know those things. There are going to be 15 questions on those trumping examples I gave you, right? On how to drop those um, non-severe HCCs when a more severe HCC, um, of course, would be take precedence. You're going to be qu quizzed on predictive modeling. We talked about that, uh, that predictive modeling that they do. And then, of course, the different types of models, the HCC, uh, the Medicaid one, the HHS, understanding those. Um, you'll need to know all of those things. Uh, and so I just recommend, you know, being familiar with those. That's the part of the exam that may be a little trickier for some people because the way they word the questions, like I mentioned, they're going to word the questions like, what is not the case? And they're going to give you four options. And you're going to have to, in the multiple choice option, you're going to have to pick which of those options is correct. And some of times multiples of those is correct. So they're going to give you one, two, three, and four. And they're going to ask you, do I code? Or do I include one, two, three, and four, two and three, one and two, four and one? Like they're going to do all of that and mess with your head a little bit. So be very familiar uh, with those options and, and how that works. There's going to be five multiple choice questions on understanding HIDAS, right? And of course, the star ratings and how those align with risk adjustment. We talked about those star ratings briefly. But again, I recommend a course if you can, or at least get out there and do your research on the star ratings um, and understand um, that methodology. 21 questions on your ability 
to understand um, the ACA risk adjustment model, the CDPS risk adjustment model, all of those, understanding that. And so with all of that being said, are you ready for the exam? Are you ready to be a risk adjustment coder? Well, I hope so, because it is a hot, hot credential, and it's one that I recommend getting. Those that work in risk adjustment, of course, are very needed right now. Now, in years past, it was more like, okay, they'll train you, and, and it's still that way to a certain extent. But a lot of companies now are putting in their job description that they, re they require or they prefer, right, a CRC credential. They will, of course, hire you if you're already a CPC certified coder because they realize you already know IC10 guidelines and they can train you and they're willing to train you a lot of times on those things. There are companies like Change Healthcare, there are others out there um, like Ciox, uh, that are that they do from time to time hire risk adjustment coders. And so my recommendation, if you've never heard any of my episodes on, of course, how to find a job in healthcare, um, we had a special interview with our recruiter. Uh, and someone who works um, for Weller IT, and he had some great info. So check out our previous season. Um, previous seasons, we had several um, on um, how to, of course, get a job in healthcare, um, how to interview, and things like that. Um, I had a lot of, of helpful podcast episodes on that. So I'll let you review those. But one of the things I will highlight is networking. Uh, it can't be overstated that networking is so important. So when you go to LinkedIn, do you have a LinkedIn profile? Do you follow people in the industry? that you wanna be in, like, of course, coding and billing, risk adjustment. You can search things like, um, you know, recruiter, healthcare, coding recruiter, and you can even follow me. I mean, I have, of course, built my network for a purpose, to help coders find jobs. That's one of my passions. I've been coding and been in this field for almost 20 years now. It's changed a lot, the landscape's changed. And so there's a lot of things that have changed in healthcare um, and, and how we go about finding work course, the pandemic changed a lot of that as well. The dynamic of working from home has changed a little bit. And I've seen some positive steps. So are some employers being willing to train more because they need the they need the coders. They're remote. They can't, of course, always go to the office because of certain things. So they are being more lenient a little bit now and they're being more willing to train people. So now is the time to get out there and search for that coding job. And yes, it's like a job in itself, isn't it? It takes time, sometimes months or even a year um, to find that job, but don't give up. Um, keep reaching for those other credentials that are going to add value to your to your resume and to add value to you as a as a coder. And if you've taken a course and you're in the interview, talk about that. Talk about how much work you invested, and how much you learned, and how many charts you coded, how many examples you coded, and that you were actually coding in your course. You have a you have a lot of experience to give them because you're fresh out of school, you're fresh out of a, a great course that brought you that experience in coding numerous, numerous charts and numerous examples. So use that. I learned that from one of my educators that taught me for the CCS exam, for the Certified Coding Specialist for HEMA. He gave us specific tips on how to get a job as a inpatient coder. And that was one of the things he mentioned that I, I've always remembered is talk about your experience in your education, because that is so valuable. Now, I'm not going to say all, not all employers are created equal. Some of them just want that credential or they want that experience and you can't get around it. But there are some employers who are really, truly interested in, in helping people advance and helping people grow. They're out there. I promise you. I have interviewed for them. I have been... 
I've coded for them before. And even though I didn't have all the experience in that specialty, they hired me anyway because I had education. And so they're out there. Sometimes it's about personality, yes. And so if we don't have that personality that we're outgoing, um, try to work on that a little bit, you know, work on those skills, at least for that interview process, if you can. You're shy by nature. Uh, Take a course or talk to somebody, have them help you interview, maybe practice interviewing with a friend or somebody um, that you trust and have them give you tips on how you can improve in your interview skills if that's what's going to take to get that job you want, right? So think about those things. Now, when it comes to the resume, we always recommend having um, that looked at by a professional. Um, I do sometimes occasionally help doing that, but we also have partnered with Project Resume. I love Project Resume. I love Anne and what she does and Barnaby. So, of course, all of our listeners, as you'll, of course, hear in our podcast, uh, they do get 10% off um, of services because of our connection and our promotion with them. We partner with them to do that, to offer that discount uh, to um, our listeners uh, to get that. And, of course, I'm super excited this year. Um we got a chance to meet together. I, I was I got to meet Anne. She's a great person at HealthCon. And of course, both of us are going to be exhibitors at HealthCon 2022 in, in Washington, D.C. So hope you guys get a chance to check us out there. I'll be speaking at HealthCon um, as well um, as a coder. And so I hope you have a chance to attend either virtually or live. Uh, we have so much, to, of course, to look forward to in the next year and coming in 2023 with guidelines and updates. And again, we we do have so much coming forth with risk adjustment. It changes constantly. This last year, we had a risk adjustment conference where we had risk adjustment experts from all over the country that came together virtually and talked about risk adjustment. So if you're really interested in learning more about it and you want to hear from experts in the field, that is still available on demand on our website at www.ozarkcoding.com. Under virtual events, you'll see that risk adjustment conference. We had some great people, of course, that presented. And of course, we do plan on doing it again in 2022 down the road. So watch for that. In 2022, we also have some great, great conferences planned for cardiovascular with Miss Terry Fletcher. And if you love podcasts, always check out Codecast with Terry Fletcher. It's an amazing podcast. It, of course, is an award-winning podcast. And I just love her to pieces. She's a great podcaster. I learn a lot from her and, and listening to her. And of course, we're also going to bring back, as per requested, some other specialty conferences that we haven't done before. So we're going to do one on pediatrics. Uh, We're bringing back oncology. If you have any requests for specialty conferences that you want, we have the resources. We have the consultants at our fingertips that will be there to help you with that specialty. So if you need CEUs and you need uh, that specialty training, reach out to us. Uh, We do accept. We're now accepting, of course, speaker requests. So if you are, uh, of course, specialized in a certain area like that and you want to speak at our conference and you want to, of course, be reimbursed by either CEUs and our, of course, a small honorarium we offer to our presenters, reach out to us. Email me at jennifer at ozarkcoding.com. I'd love to have you as a presenter and welcome you to our consultant team. So, of course, we love, love, love sharing with you guys our, our journey here at the Life as a Coder podcast series. It's always our goal to inspire and educate. And as you know, I always say knowledge is power. The knowledge you gain today makes you powerful tomorrow. Never give up on coding. Uh, Always stay reaching for that next credential. Keep learning and keep growing. 
So that's the end of our podcast today. I want to thank our sponsors, Ozark Coding Alliance, and our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fast, who always makes us sound so great. This live episode is our bonus episode for the month of August. And so those of you who are part of our Patreon squad uh, that purchased our membership for CEUs, this is, of course, your bonus episode. If you are interested in getting low-cost CEUs every month, you'll get three CEUs as a VIP member. So you're going to get one of our webinars for free, our bonus episode, and one of our regular episodes during the month for for free, or it's not for free, included in the membership. It's $10 a month. You get three CEUs. Then, of course, for our all-access members, you get our bonus episode today, plus our regular episode. Of course, you get shout-outs on some of our shows, and of course, discounts on our events. If you want to pay a dollar, one dollar for just one episode, you get one CEU a month. Can't beat that, right? That will help you get your uh, closer to your CEUs that you need for the year. So check out www.patreon.com slash life as a coder. That's www.patreon.com slash life as a coder. And follow us. We also have a website, www.lifeasacoder.org. And ways for you to listen. Of course, you can subscribe to get future episode updates. And please, please, please leave us a voice message on Anchor. You can leave us a voice message. All of that, of course, is in our show notes. You can leave us a voice message and tell us what you think about the show. Uh, Of course, any reviews, things that you want us to talk about at a a future show. We really, really want uh, you to tell us what you want to hear because we're here for you. So thank you so much for listening today. And until next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Life as a Coder podcast series brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other coders, students, and professionals just like you. Come back every Wednesday for a new episode. We'll catch you then.